uh, one of my fondest memories in this church as I grew up as a boy was uh, the Memorial Day picnic. It was uh, one of my, it's just one of my best memories. And uh, we're really pleased uh, this year, my, my wife and I especially, to uh, welcome the church to our farm for Memorial's Day. We're going to do the picnic out there. Um, it should be a good time. If you've never come, this is what it consists of. You bring something to grill um, or, and then something to share. And then you sit and visit a long time. And maybe, you know, the kids run off and do something with a Frisbee. That's great. That's, that's it. Uh, so we welcome you. There's information uh, that's coming uh, that will give you details, but uh, we're excited uh, to have you there. And, and we were uh, getting the barn ready uh, this weekend, but not for the Memorial Day thing. Baptist Student Ministries had a square dance in our barn last night, and it was cool. About 80 people doing a hoedown, uh, though they might have parked on my septic tank, so I'm nervous to get home. <laughs> Check that out. Uh, you can imagine what my prayer request was. But uh, at any rate, <clears throat> um, we were cleaning up for the, 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 the party, and uh, you know, this, this, it's a beautiful stone barn. It was built in 1794, and it's got all the joinery of the time. You, know, uh, you can look up and see the pegs and the beams, and it's really beautiful. And, and as I was cleaning, I have these thoughts that have, have kind of cemented for this morning, which is, uh, we had kind of been neglectful of the barn over the past year. I mean, you go in and there's stuff everywhere. It was kind of sloppy. And it's this beautiful, this beautiful thing. And so I experienced this feeling of neglect, like we've been neglecting it or then taking it for granted. And then once it started to get clean, then my spirit went to the entire opposite side of the spectrum. And I was uh, the wrong kind of proud, if you know what I mean. We all have this, right? as though I laid the stones for this thing. And uh, the, reality, the reality is, is that someone long before I was even in mind laid the stones for that barn. And it's been restored, and I didn't restore it. I mean, the restoration came from some uh, Amish friends of ours who restored the barn. And, and yet I was feeling prideful about it. And I just want to bring that idea and that image uh, to our faith this morning that there's times that we treat our, our lives with neglect or we take them for granted or even worse, on the opposite side, we live our lives with a sense of pride that we have established ourselves, you know. But the Lord says, who are you, O man, right? He's laid our foundations, and he has restored us. And we have been the recipients of great love and affection. So, uh, anyway, th- this morning, we're going to be approaching one of the ordinances of the Lord. We're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper. And I, and I hope and pray that you can approach it with that frame of mind. Uh, we'll be uh, around Scripture this morning. But if you would like to open initially your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26... You can. That's page 690. In my hands, I have a sermon on baptism and the Lord's Supper, but they won't all fit. So I, I would prefer to do baptism. Uh, it, it is the natural course of things, but it seems appropriate today to do the Lord's Supper, and so we're going to do the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about it. This is a teaching message. 
Um, it's to uh, teach uh, with clarity the word of God on this ordinance of the church. Uh, so that uh, is the tone of the message. And I'm committed to maybe at our next baptism of uh, taking time to talk about baptism. So I want you to know that since we are, we're in the sermon series called Credo, which is on the marks of the church, what makes the church. And on, when we talk about the ordinances, our church observes two ordinances, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I just want you to know I am committed to uh, discussing uh, the Lord's uh, teachings on baptism uh, when we get a chance. A few quick things about ordinances that are distinct to our tradition. Uh, we, we, the Baptist tradition uh, or the non-denominational tradition, a lot of the tra- traditions that look like this have responded or reacted theologically and in practice away from um, people using ordinances as a way of conveying the grace of God. So the Roman Catholic tradition is a way of, uh, they use baptism and uh, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper as a way of actually as a means, as a vehicle of transmitting the grace of the Lord to the recipient. And since the Reformation, there's been a strong theological reaction to that among the reforming churches, and we've said, no, there is no material grace that's being transmitted through the sacraments. In fact, that's why the Baptist church has shirked away the word sacrament and used ordinances for this very issue. Uh, so there's, we've said, no, there is no actual means of grace that's being transmitted through the, the substance of baptism or through the Lord's Supper, but in fact, it's representative of a grace that's received through faith in Jesus Christ. It's what we would say is symbolic. Symbolic of the grace. It's a memorial of the grace that has been received through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and that is true. Um, that is an accurate statement. But I, I want to, whenever the pendulum swings, right, it crosses center. So I want to just, I want to just uh, give a nudge back in the direction uh, for us a little bit on how to view uh, the ordinances of the church. They are symbolic. They are symbolic, but I think they are more than symbolic. Something is actually happening when we partake in the ordinances of the Lord. Something is actually happening. And we have to assume this. One, because God told us to do them. Why would have God told us to do something if nothing was happening? Now, even if the meaning is primarily symbolic, the symbolic meaning does something in us or ought to do something in us. It ought to draw us closer to the Lord. The Lord would give, would, he wouldn't waste himself. He wouldn't give us something that wouldn't actually do something. And so while the meaning is itself not, a, not an explicit transmission of grace, something is happening here. When we partake in the ordinances of the Lord, we are, we are obeying the Lord. That is happening. And in my mind, in the mind of the church, every act of obedience is a means of grace. It's a way of drawing closer to the Lord. It's, it's a way that we center our demeanor back on the Lord. That's happening when we partake in these things. It's a response to God. This morning, and by the way, we put, this, we put the Lord's Supper in front of the teaching so that you could just take it with a clear spirit and then reflect on it. 
But this morning, as you're doing it, you're responding to the Lord in a certain way. That's actually happening. That's not symbolic. The image is symbolic, but it is doing something. In fact, we are actors. None of us watches the Lord's Supper. We partake in the Lord's Supper. Something is happening. And this morning, as we discuss the Lord's Supper or, and, and talk about this, this is the question that I want to, uh, want to try to help us answer, help you answer uh, in the best ways, is how am I supposed to feel when I'm taking the Lord's Supper? These are kind of practical sort of questions. Like, when I'm taking the Lord's Supper, what's supposed to be my posture? How am I supposed to feel? What am I supposed to get out of it? Why are we doing it? I think that's kind of, we all ask those questions, when, what's actually happening here? Well, I'd like us to try to be able to answer, answer that, especially the question of posture. What's our posture? Because sometimes um, you can make a mistake that I'm often tempted to make, which is, we see it's Lord's Supper Sunday, and I deal with the temptation as the, as the pastor, as I'm sure the worship team does, is trying to convey to you, using this and feeling the burden of responsibility to convey to you an experience which is not the Lord's Supper. This is a shared response to the Lord. So it's not behoven on the music played or the meditative words in front. It's larger than that, right? It's a corporate engagement in a commanded ordinance of the Lord. That's what we're, we're trying to do this morning as we, as we talk about the Lord's Supper. So with that, um, let me catch up with you here in Matthew. And there's a lot that can be said uh, about uh, uh, the Lord's Supper. Less than baptism, incidentally, but there's still a fair amount that can be said. You can think of it one way. If you have two ordinances in the church, they serve as almost bookends to the ministry of Christ. So baptism is the way of commissioning Christ's ministry, and the Lord's Supper is the way of consummating Christ's ministry. It's almost as though he... He kind of bookends his ministry with these two ordinances in the church. And we, we know that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the church because we find in 1 Corinthians, and we'll, and we'll turn there later, you don't need to go there now, but what we find in the biblical record is that the church is already practicing the Lord's Supper in regularity. That Paul goes to the church in Corinth and he, he begins to comment and teach and tweak their practice of this ordinance. And so we know it's it's already there, it's already active, and it's taking place in the church. But much is, uh, and, and that's about, there's not a lot of teaching on how to do it. In the sense of, uh, we didn't find a verse in the Bible about the size of the plastic cup. There's no verse in the Bible about that. Or do you have one large loaf from which people pull, or do you break the loaf and distribute it? Um, Wine or fruit of the vine, all of these questions. There's a lot of freedom in the Bible on the actual way it's done. But what the Bible does do with the Lord's Supper is place it in a biblical context about what it means. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. The account in Matthew, Matthew 26, uh, is one of the four accounts of the Lord's Supper. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk to the Lord's Supper. But I'm going to read the account from Matthew. And uh, then we'll, we'll look a little bit about what it has to say. 
I'm going to pick up in the 26th verse. Matthew 26, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of its fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. If we look at the the biblical story here, what we see is historically the Last Supper is reenacting, or excuse me, the Lord's Supper is reenacting the Last Supper. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we are in a way reenacting what happened during the Last Supper between Jesus and the followers. But there's something else that's happening. There's like another layer of reenactment. So we are reenacting the Last Supper but the Last Supper is reenacting the Passover. You see that? It's a double reenactment. We're reenacting what a part of the meal of reenactment of when the Passover actually happened. The Last Supper is the Passover meal that Christ is celebrating with his disciples. And the Passover meal reminds the people of Israel of the time when God saved them from Egypt. And so the meal... This is embedded in a deeper meal. And the deeper meal is a meal of salvation. It's a meal of your salvation comes by my judgment passing over you because there's the blood of the lamb is on your doors. And after that, I free you and bring you into a promised land. That is the context upon which the Last Supper is built and upon which the Lord's Supper is built. So in other words, the Lord's Supper is immediately significant in the life of the church. It isn't as though Christ invented it and then had to explain it. It took place in such a way that it immediately has meaning. It is immediately meaningful to the church. Because it's immediately correlating for the church, Christ is doing for us what God did for the Israelites when he took them out of Egypt. When Christ says, this is my body which is given for you, This is the blood of the new covenant, which is being shed for you at the Passover meal. He's taking the entire testament of the Hebrews, and he's pushing it into this promise. And that's what's happening here. And the second thing that that you see just from the setting, right? The setting of reenactment. But the other thing you see from the setting is, and this will sound so obvious that you're like, why is it worth saying? But it is. It's happening in a meal. The Lord's Supper is happening within the context of fellowship. That the way Jesus wanted his followers to, with a certain degree of regularity, right, with, to repeat throughout the ages, the way he wanted them to remember this is that it was actually happening as the course of fellowship between Jesus and the disciples. There is this, there's this notion that, that the Lord is drawing close to his people. There's a spirit of affection in the Lord's Supper. 
There's a spirit of God is with us. He's not apart from us. We're not trying to draw closer to a distant God, but God is reaching across the table in the Lord's Supper, that the Lord is among us and he's sharing himself with us. It's, there is a fellowship here. And if you're trying to think, what is my posture in the Lord's Supper? How should I feel? This is the first way that I think we should approach the Lord's Supper. We should approach it with a spirit of joy and thanksgiving that God is communing with us. I mean, fundamentally, this is not the ordinance of an angry God. This is the ordinance of a God who came to earth to eat. This is an ordinance of divine friendship. It's an ordinance of affection and love. And that should be in your experience with the Lord's Supper. As you're approaching the Lord's table, you should not be forgetful of the fact that God wants you here. And he's sharing with you and his friends. That's the, the first thing we see about our posture is this spirit of divine friendship. Here's the second thing we see. If you look at the text, look at the words of Christ. He, he gives things. He says, this is my body. Take and eat. This is my body. That's the 26th verse. And then the 27th verse, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's giving of himself. He's giving what is symbolically his body and his blood. It's symbolic because Jesus is there. And he's giving the body and the, and the wine, the bread and the wine. So even he is saying it's obviously a symbol. So he's giving these symbols out, this, 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 his body and his blood. He, he's expressing this, which is the whole idea is, is that the Lord's Supper conveys an idea that we fellowship with God at great sacrifice on God's part. That the reason that we're able to join with the Lord, that we're to be able to draw close to the Father, that the, that the divine friendship that we share with Christ, that all of that affection is there on account of the fact that Jesus himself is willing to give of his body on our behalf and that he's willing to shed his blood on our behalf. We receive that. That is a gift for us. It's mindful in the life of the church. You can even think of a church that has grown stagnant or stale or wooden that may not even be teaching or preaching the word faithfully. Every time they do the Lord's Supper, they are reminded that Jesus shed his blood and suffered on their behalf. Christ is preaching the gospel through it, that I have given myself for you. It's from this that we gain this, this idea of our posture. If you're wondering what should our posture be, how should we feel, there should be sobriety when we come before the Lord's table. There should be a sense of soberness. This is where the spirit of a somber spirit comes around the Lord's table. It's because we remember what happened to our Lord and Savior. How can we not think on the crucifixion when we share in the Lord's Supper? In fact, in Corinthians it says, and this way we proclaim the crucifixion of the Lord until his return. 
It's a way of reminding ourselves of what's happened. And so this affects our posture. It's sobriety. This is, it makes us somber. This is a time of thankfulness. This is actually where the word thankfulness shows up. It shows up in 1 Corinthians 10, where the phrase Eucharist comes from is being thankful. This is where we realize the weight of what's actually happening. is isn't simply that Jesus is our friend. It's that Jesus is our friend at great sacrifice and cost, the giving of his life and the shedding of his blood. And we see that. And theologically something we see here that that should affect the way we think is the passivity of our passivity in this so far in this image. So for all of the work, right, when Christ hands the, his body and hands his blood to the disciples, so far he has done everything. This is my body which is given for you. This is the blood of a new covenant that's been shed for you. The whole idea, the theological idea here is that Jesus has done all the work on our behalf. We have not done any of this. This is his gift to us. But the entire ordinance is not passive. We do have to do something. What do we do? What do we do? We have to eat. And we have to drink. This is the, this is the active side of... So the passive side of the ordinance is that Jesus Christ is giving of himself to us. But the active side of it is that we in fact have to take and eat and take and drink. Which is this notion that we in fact have to participate with the work of Jesus Christ. The, the, the Lord's Supper implies that you cannot experience the salvation of God by watching the Lord's Supper. You cannot simply know that Jesus died and was resurrected. The knowledge of his death and resurrection, it does nothing. That's information. The, the only way that we experience the salvation that comes through the death and resurrection of Christ is by participating in his life. This is what it says. Turn to John chapter 6 with me for a second. This is page 741 if you're using uh, one of our Bibles. Now, John chapter 6, he, this is actually before the Lord's Supper. It's, it's not the Last Supper. It's not actually occurred yet. In fact, he's just fed the fishes and loaves. It's that story. And I'll be picking up in the 53rd verse. In part, he's, in part, he's teaching a profound teaching. So... I don't want to diminish that, but he's also responding to people who just want stuff from him. But he says these very strong words. He says, I tell you, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. That is very active. That is very active. You have no part in the Lord unless you feed on him. 
That's the implication from Scripture. That when we take the Lord's Supper, there's, there's divine friendship that's expressed because he's meeting us through in fellowship over a meal. There's a sense of sobriety that's expressed because we're thinking of all that was done on our behalf. But there's also a sense of, of conviction that comes from the need for us to be participating in the life of Christ. In other words, you ought to be in your spirit. Ask yourself this question. Do you, do you have an appetite for the Lord? Do you long? Do you long to know him? Do you long for him to be close to you? Do you, you know, in a symbolic sense, could you feed on, on what God has to say? When the words of God fall on you, does that feed you or does that drive you away? Does that fit your appetite or does it not fit your appetite? Does the idea of, of having to have the Lord in your life and that you want your life to express all of who Christ is, right? The, Christ is coming into us and nourishing us and empowering us. Is, is that how you express your faith? Or is your faith, I believe technically in what happened? Because if that's how you believe, then you're watching the Lord's Supper. You're not partaking in the body and blood of Christ. You must take him. You must feed on him. You have to participate. In Corinthians, it says we ought to examine ourselves. That's what it says. We must examine ourselves to see if these, this posture is the case. In fact, let's turn there now. We'll look at our last idea here this morning in 1 Corinthians. If you want to turn first to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, this is not a teaching on 1 Corinthians. Uh, sometimes I wish it was. Um, so I, I, we won't go into all the dirty laundry of the Corinthian church. But right, you can, right now, I will say this much. They're driven by liberality, and they've used their freedom in Christ as a license to express their faith in the way that they choose, regardless of who, who's in the church or what's going on. So it is not a community of one, it's one community of many is the general theme that Paul's pushing against that certainly we in our individualistic culture can understand, this desire to personalize our faith experience over and above the collective idea. And so he's responding to that here in 1 Corinthians 10. But if you look in 10.14, I just want you to see this last idea, which is this idea that the Lord's Supper is not just a shared meal with Christ, but it's a shared meal among the church. Look here, and he says in, in chapter 10.14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? You see these ideas. Thanksgiving and participation. And he says, And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Then he says this, Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. 
So he's beginning a teaching here. He's, he's coming back to their, he's trying to beat out their sense of individuality. And he's saying here, look, we, when we take of the one loaf, you take your piece of the one loaf. But in a, this almost, you might imagine, in a spiritual sense, since the church is the body, that we break off the one loaf, but that the one loaf reassembles in the body of Christ. That's what he's saying. He's saying, ultimately, we represent only one loaf. And he's dealing with an idea that apparently some people don't care in the church that others are feasting with idols or that others have aberrant behavior. There's a sense of, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm good with the Lord. When I come before the Lord's table, I'm pure. And he's saying, it does matter. He's saying, there is only one loaf. So the fact, that, the fact that you may be holy when you come before this table is in fact related and does matter if other people in our body are coming in an in a irreverent manner. We're tainting the loaf is what he goes on to say. He says, is it possible? Is it possible to feast at the Lord's table and feast at a table of an idol? No, he says. And he goes on in a second. He goes on to build on this image in the, in the 11th chapter. And I'm just going to read from 17 all the way through his, his dealing with, with the Corinthian church here. I'll give you just a, enough context to kind of understand. They would share the Lord's Supper in a meal. This is how it was being done in the beginning. It was, we think it was being shared over the course of a meal, what they would call a love feast. And in that meal, they would share the Lord's Supper. But they didn't have a big gymnasium. like They weren't as lavishly endowed with a gymnasium like we were. So what they would do is they would meet in homes, but there were more people that, that were there to, to have the meal than they could, in fact, sit at the dining room. So some would eat and feast while others waited, and then when they were done, those who were waiting would go and feast. We would just kind of wait our turn. It was like waiting your turn at a potluck. It's kind of what was happening. Well, what also invariably happened is that cliques had developed and so that those who, the haves, the distinguished in the church, were the first ones to go in and enjoy the place of honor. And they would go in and feast and gorge themselves on the meal. And then the, the have-nots would show up and there was no body or blood left. And this is what Paul's responding to in the 11th chapter. It says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt that there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. I think that's sarcasm. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Now there's a lot said in that passage. What I want to draw your attention to um, is the communal implications of the Lord's Supper. Which is, I believe, this is the posture. It should, this is the walkaway posture from the Lord's Supper. To me, uh, I just feel this very strongly. We should walk away with a posture that desires to share the grace and love of Jesus Christ evenly among the group. There should be a sense, there should be a sense in your heart, a sense in your heart that grieves. When you are, let me just say it this way, when you are, you and your circle, you're, and I'm not responding to anything here. When you and your circle, in uh, your experience, happen to be feasting on the grace of Jesus Christ. Let me just say that. When, when you're in the high side of the Christian life, when things are going great, and you get the promotion, and everything's working great, and you know, you come home and your wife is prettier than when you left and your kids get straight A pluses and it's all because of the Lord. And maybe it is all because of the Lord and it is all good. I'm, I'm not denying any of that. I'm asking you to assume it is all of the Lord and it is all good. But there is some other Christian in this church in another room waiting who has not felt that kind of grace and I'm just, I'm, I'm saying that when we come to this table, it reminds us that even in our joy, we should, as a church, desire that they would know the love of Christ like I'm feeling it right now. There should be a spirit in our highest moments. Uh, there should still be a sobriety in our highest moments of saying, yet someone here is not sharing the Lord the way I share the Lord. There, should, there shouldn't be a sense of, I got drunk on the Spirit today. When we know in our church that there's people starving, they, there's people here who miss God. I know that. As though God weren't here. This is, to me, the heart of the, of the Lord's Supper being shared is why in, in Acts chapter 2, it says that everybody shared what they had with everyone else according to their needs. It's because the theological reality of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper in a church is the desire that we would all enjoy the shared grace of the body and blood of Jesus Christ for his glory because we're one loaf and we're one body. Do we have a posture of that? That when we come out of this, we have a concern for others the way that Christ had a concern for us. I want to remind you that you did not bear yourself into this world. You were built on a foundation, nor did you restore yourself. Someone came and restored you at great cost. It is a gift from Jesus Christ.